Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 24. In this audio, I will take up the story of the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And then we'll look at the healing of the deaf and dumb man in Decapolis. Starting with Mark 7:24, he got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. He departed from there. From where? That was from Capernaum. That's where we left him off last audio. He had just healed a whole bunch of people. The people were crushing him as usual in Capernaum. He had just come back from across the Sea of Galilee from the incident of the feeding of the 5,000, the walking of the water of Jesus, the calming of the storm, and so forth. Now he left Capernaum, and he's gone back up to to leave Galilee, to leave Judah, and go to the uh, area of Tyre and Sidon. We know that from the parallel passage in Matthew 15. Now the parallel passages here, there's only two of them really. Uh, there's only two of them, one in Mark and one in Matthew, Matthew 15. Matthew 15:21 says this, when Jesus left there, i.e. Capernaum, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Now it doesn't say he went to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, but just to the area. Now, that's right north of Israel on the Mediterranean coast and what was called Phoenicia back then and what today is called Lebanon. Now this, why did he enter a house up in that region? Because he did not want anyone to know it. Well, this is the so-called messianic secret. He's trying to keep people from prematurely proclaiming him as Messiah, which would, of course would have wrecked his ministry. He hasn't changed his char. He hasn't trained his disciples fully yet. And if he'd have gotten arrested, uh, if he'd have been set up as a political Messiah and gotten arrested by the Jews, that, uh, and then. Uh, the Romans would have come in and tried to put down the tumult. It could have been a disaster. So he's trying to keep things quiet. Of course, he it says he failed to do so. He could not escape notice. That's very interesting. Could not. This is God. This is Jesus, who is God, who is omnipotent. But he couldn't do that. Why? Because he was human too. He had to do a lot of things in a human fashion. He he didn't just wave his hands and says, "Everybody, be blind. Don't see what I'm doing." He took natural means to escape notice. Mark 7, verse 25 and 26. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, Mark calls her a Greek, and that just means she wasn't Jewish. All heathen idolaters were called Greeks by the Jews, as Clark said, Adam Clark has said. If you recall... Alexander the Great, who died in 323 B.C. In this short career, he had spread Greek culture all over the East. And so that's why everybody around in the area was called Greek. And if you recall, the Jewish culture was split between the Hellenistic, the Greek Jews, and the Hebrew Jews. So that's why she was called Greek. didn't matter whether the Parthians, Medes, or whomever, or whoever they were. They were, were Greeks. Matthew calls her a Canaanite. That also was a typical word to call the people up there, even though she was not technically from the land of, from those tribes of the Canaanites that Joshua partly exterminated. But that's just what they call people that live in that area. So she, at any rate, she was not a Jew. Tyre was, I think, was about 20, about 30 miles north of Israel. And Sidon was about 25 further miles north of that on the coast there of the Mediterranean Sea. All right, so despite the fact he was trying to be quiet, this Syrophoenician woman found out about her, about him, came to him and said, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly tormented by a demon. Now we get a little bit more details about this incident in, 
in Matthew, first of all, she calls him son of David. Why would a foreigner call Jesus, the, Jew, the Jewish messianic term, son of David? And she calls him Lord. Well, first of all, Lord, does that just mean sir, a polite form of address? Or does that mean more of a religious title, more of a acknowledgement that Jesus was Messiah? It's not clear, but she does say son of David, which is a messianic term that the Jews use. She probably had heard it somewhere from the Jews. And so she calls him son of David. She might have even been a Jewish proselyte, John Gill says. Now, interestingly, this raises an issue, the fact that Jesus went out of Israel to Tyre and Sidon and then proceeds to heal this Syrophoenician woman's daughter's demon condition. Because Jesus had instructed the disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. So what's he doing messing with Gentiles here? Not only that, he, he also healed Gentiles. Presumably they were Gentiles in Decapolis when he cast out the demons out of the Gadarene demoniac. Well, I, in my opinion, the easiest way to answer that is to say that Jesus mainly was ministering to the Jews, but sometimes when he found himself, he had to go to Gentile areas to get out of the, the way of the crowds. If he ran into Gentiles that needed healing, he wasn't going to say, well, I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not going to heal you. I think that the healing of the Gentiles is just an exception to the general rule. Besides, he didn't really go up there to minister. He went away to get away from the crowds and to teach his disciples, not to minister. So he goes up there and then he runs into this woman. Now, interestingly, some people, the old commentators used to say that the way you answered that question is that the, the Scripture never says here that he went into the land of the Gentiles. In fact, John Gill says that. He was writing in the 1800s. He says that just as Jesus ordered his disciples not to go to the Gentiles, neither did Jesus. Well, I got found a footnote in Robertson who says this, quote, It used to be questioned whether he actually left the land of Israel. Matthew's expression ought to have settled the question, and the corrected text of Mark 70, 31 leaves no doubt. So let's drop down and see what Robertson is quoting in Mark 7, 31. Mark says this, Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. That's the Holman Christian Study Bible. I think the King James translates it in such a way it's not really clear. But anyway, today everybody knows that he left he actually was outside of Israel into Gentile territory. Now, notice that the Syrophoenician woman fell down at his feet, as it says in Mark chapter 7, verse 25. This shows that she is showing extreme respect and reverence to Jesus. She really wanted that demon out of her daughter. Mark chapter 7, verse 27 through 30. He, Jesus, said to her, Allow the children to be satisfied first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The children, of course, Jesus is referring to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, supposed to get ministered to first. She's a Gentile dog, and therefore she should not be bothering him to heal her demoniac daughter. At least that's ostensibly what Jesus is making, trying to look like. Now we're going to see that what Jesus is actually doing here, he's refusing her at first to see how much she really believed in him, to see if she would importune him, to use the old-fashioned King James English, to see if she would knock, 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 knock on the door and keep on knocking. And that's exactly what she did. But that's why Jesus was giving her a hard time here at first. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Pretty smart answer. 
Then he told her, Because of this reply, you may go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Some have speculated that she was lying on the bed because she was exhausted, because generally people who have demons cast out of them, the convulsions and so forth, are physically tired. I don't know. That might be true. It might not be true. Now, what I said about Jesus trying to try her face by refusing faith by refusing to answer her at first is is stated by Gill and Clark to be the reason also. So that's not just my idea. That's a, that's a standard answer there. Here's a quote from John Gill. She was troublesome to them. In fact, Matthew 15 says that the disciples approached Jesus and urged him, send her away because she cries out after us. I mean, she was really importunate. She was please, 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 and driving the disciples crazy. So at first it appears like Jesus is going to go along with his disciples and say, lady, please, let's, let's, let's get out of here. You're bothering us. Here's what Gill says, quote, she was troublesome to them, was importunate with them, and would take no denial from them. She followed them wherever they went. There was no getting rid of her, but also, because her case was so moving, was delivered in such an affecting manner, and her cries were piercing that they could not bear them. Now, notice where it says in Matthew 50, verse 24, he replied, Jesus replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He could have been talking just to the disciples, but I don't think so. Gil thinks that, but I don't think so. I think he was talking to the woman, too, but maybe to the woman for the benefit of the disciples also. Matthew 15, verse 25 through 26 says, she came, knelt before him. Mark says she fell before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Now, why would he call her a dog? Well, it sounds terrible to call somebody a dog. I remember I had two Christian friends of mine in college who were very popular, handsome type guys, and they were constantly chasing after the same beautiful women. And one would date one, then the other one would call the other one up and date her. And, and finally, they started calling each other dog. You dog! You dog! Now, they were just kidding around a little bit, partially at least. We call somebody a dog, It's in English, it's... It's not a good thing. But the Greek says little dogs. They had different words for big dog and little dog. And I've studied Bible points this out, which means that Jesus is referring to a pet dog in the home. And Jews typically call Gentiles those little dogs, like little dogs. It's not quite as pejorative as it sounds in English. And Jesus was merely adopting the common dialect of the Jewish people, which the woman could understand, and as a matter of fact, did understand. She understood exactly what she said. That's why she answered, but yeah, but the little dogs eat the crumbs from the table. So this term of dogs was not used by Jesus in a pejorative sense to make her feel bad because she's a dog and wasn't a Jew. She would know that, according to the Jews, she was one of those little pet dogs because she lived outside of the Jewish nation. Now, that's not to say that the Jews didn't use the term as a way of contempt. Yes, they did. Here's a quote from John Gill. The Gentiles, so-called by the Jews, called by dogs, by the Jews, in a way of contempt because of their ignorance, idolatry, and impurity. Christ here speaks not his own mind as if he reproached the Gentiles and held them in scorn and contempt, but uses the common dialect of the people. It was not so shocking and surprising or quite so discouraging as it would otherwise have been. In other words, he's got to use language. He uses language the woman could understand. Adam Clark says, quote, what terrible repulses, and yet she still perseveres. Oh, yes, she did. That woman was smart. 
she it was mentioned to her that she was a dog and so she said yeah but dogs eat crumbs i just want a little crumb from you jesus heal my daughter that's all you you have so much power and just to kick that kick that demon out of my daughter would just be a little crumb crumbly part of your power and this incident shows that our attitude has everything to do with what jesus does for us if we really believe in him our faith does affect how much miracles or how strong jesus works in our lives through providence and maybe even through a direct miracle. And so people that think they can just shoot up a sentence prayer when they get in trouble and they say, oh, God didn't answer me. He must not love me. That's not the way Jesus operates. He's not a genie in a bottle. You've got to come to him, put your arms around him, and say, please, Jesus, get me out of this mess. <laughs> and notice the woman didn't say, didn't do this. Well, it's not fair for the Jews to have priority over the Gentiles. God loves everybody. Listen. The very fact that the Jews are the chosen people, that shows that Jesus, that God did choose people over somebody else. Mankind did not consist of equal opportunity groups. The Jews had more opportunity than the Gentiles because God chose them, just like he chooses Christians. And there's nothing wrong with that, that God has every prerogative to do that. We might not have a prerogative to do that, but Jesus did. And besides, eventually, the message of the gospel went to all the groups of the, all the nations of the world including the jews and in fact even though the jews were chosen their punishment was harder because they rejected their messiah and they had the city and their country destroyed in AD 70 so we don't need to be lecturing jesus about how fair it was to choose the jews over the gentiles matthew 15 verse 28 jesus replied to her woman your faith is great let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was cured. Now, this again, a language problem here. He calls her a woman. That sounds a little bit harsh. If we called uh, 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 an elder woman and uh, 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 a mature adult woman uh, in, um, in modern English, if we called her a woman, it just sounds like you're ordering her around. But I don't know how it should translate that word woman and make it sound gentle in English. I don't think anybody's come up with a way to do that yet, but it doesn't. The idea is. It's much more gentle than that. It was much more caring and compassionate, compassionate than that. The way we would do it down here in the South, we would just say, ma'am, comma. But unfortunately, my wife's from the North. She always says that sounds sarcastic. Well, to me, it sounds perfectly polite. And that's how I would do it. Home and Christian Study Bible says from that moment her daughter was cured. NIV says from that hour her daughter was cured. I don't know exactly. Does it really matter how fast she was cured? But I suspect it was from the time that she Jesus spoke that demon had to leave. Now notice this was a demon exorcism at a distance. He wasn't even there to deal with the demon to tell him to shut up and get out. And notice this was a bad demon position because demon possession because the woman the the daughter was cruelly tormented, as it says earlier here in Mark, cruelly tormented. Jameson Fawcett and Brown comments in on Mark 7:29 concerning this incident Jesus only marveled at two things faith and unbelief he constantly did that he just couldn't believe oh you of little faith and then when he saw faith like the synagogue rulers excuse me the centurion slave who Jesus healed at a difference here was a demon exorcism at a distance and earlier before in Capernaum Jesus had healed the synagogue the centurion's daughter at a distance, or excuse me, not his daughter, his slave, at a distance, and he said, such faith I've never seen in Israel, talking about the centurion, that who was a Gentile, and here is a, another Gentile, another dog, such faith. 
he had, he was shocked at the faith. And and remember, these people are not people who've had the oracles of God deposited in their nation like the Jews had. All right, so now we've finished with the story of the Syrophoenician woman, and we turn now to the healing of the deaf man in Decapolis. So we go to Mark 7:31 Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of Decapolis. All right, we know he was somewhere around Tyre, which is the southernmost of those two Phoenician cities. Sidon was about 25 miles to the north of Tyre, according to my NIV study Bible. If you look on a map, it's right there on the coast, present-day Lebanon. He went by way of Sidon. Does it just mean he passed by the general area? Did he actually stop off in the city, near the city or in the city? It's not clear. The KGV has he was departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, whatever that means, from the area of Tyre and Sidon. But it doesn't really matter. The point is, is he left that area, and then he went to the Decapolis, which means he would have to go way north of the Sea of Galilee, outside of where all the crowds and the Pharisees might have found him, and gone over to the crossed over, I don't even know if he was north of the source of the Jordan up there at Caesarea Philippi. He might have gone by Caesarea Philippi, which is way up to the north, and then over onto the east of the Sea of Galilee, and then further south. That's the region of Decapolis. Decapolis, I think Damascus is one of those ten cities of the Decapolis, and they were scattered all the way down east of the Sea of Galilee and then about halfway down the Jordan River, mainly a Gentile area. Again, he's avoiding the Jews. Why would he avoid Galilee and the Jew, Jewish territory? He wanted to avoid Herod Antipas, according to my NIV study power, Bible, because Herod had shown a hostile interest in Jesus. We read in the last chapter, Mark 6, verses 14 through 16, King Herod heard of this because Jesus' name had become well known, heard of Jesus' ministry. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers at work in him, and so forth. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised. So Herod knows about Jesus, and he killed John the Baptist, so it's not too far of a stretch of imagination to think he might want to kill Jesus too. That was one reason he wanted to avoid Galilee. Another reason he wanted to avoid the people prematurely making him king, as my NIV study Bible says, John 6:14 through 15. When the people saw the sign he had done, that sign was the feeding of the 5,000. They said, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And that was just previous, a little ways to this incident here, a little while compared to this incident here. So Jesus couldn't go back through Galilee. So that's how he ends up in the Decapolis. Now, the first thing he meets in the Decapolis is a deaf man. Matthew says in verse 29, he went up on a mountain and sat there. This is very usual for Jesus to sit on a mountain he liked solitude. He needed to pray so the people could hear him better, perhaps, when he taught. So he would be seen as a new lawgiver because the old lawgiver Moses taught from a mountain and Jesus was teaching from a mountain too. Whatever. But he was waiting for the multitude to come to him. Now, the first incident we have of people coming to him was a deaf man. Mark 7, verse 32, they brought to him a deaf man who also had a speech difficulty and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. A speech difficulty, I suspect he couldn't talk at all. Now, this incident is not in Matthew, so we only look to Mark to see what happened here. The man was very pitiful, of course. A deaf man back then would be uneducated. He never went to school. He didn't learn how to read. He didn't learn how to write. He couldn't talk. There were no schools for the deaf then. There was no sign language. Maybe he could read lips. Probably not. And he was probably frightened out of his mind. 
because he didn't go on his own to Jesus. It says they brought to him, the crowds brought to him a deaf man. So he was being pushed forward to Jesus. He probably didn't know why he was being pushed forward to Jesus. Nobody bothered to tell him. Maybe so, maybe not. I don't, it's a speculation. But that's probably his mental state as he, as he appears before Jesus. Then Mark 7, verse 33. So he, Jesus, took him away from the crowd privately. Why? Because he had to communicate with this deaf man. It's hard to communicate with a deaf man, especially when you've got people around who would distract his attention and people pressing on Jesus, the crowds coming in. And not only that, it might bother Jesus as well, as well as the deaf man. This is what Jesus does. Continuing with Mark chapter 7, verse 33. After putting his fingers, that's Jesus' fingers, in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Well, before we discuss this interesting phenomenon here, we need to figure out exactly what Jesus did. Now, some people speculate he spit directly on the tongue, and some people say he spit on his fingers and then rubbed his fingers on the tongue. I prefer, it does, it's ambiguous. You you can't tell. I, I suspect he spit on his spat on his fingers and then touched the man's tongue. Now we need to ask why did he do that? Well, remember he can't communicate to the man. When he sticks his fingers in his ears, he's telling the deaf man, "I'm I'm going to heal your ears," or "Do you want your ears to be healed? You got a problem with your ears? I'm here to fix them." Later on in the next verse, it says he looks up to heaven. That was telling the man, I'm going to pray for your ears. Now, touching his tongue is the same, is the same, has the same general idea. I'm going to heal your tongue. That's why I'm, that's why I'm here. So he touches his tongue. I'm going to fix it. He's communicating with him. Now, that still doesn't answer why he spit on his tongue. The best answer I see here is because the ancient rabbis, many of them, and some Roman writers, thought that saliva had great healing properties and that spitting was a valid treatment. So when Jesus would spit and rub it on his tongue, that would be telling the man, if he understood that, and I bet he did, and the rest of the Jews here, well, they, were, they weren't there. He was privately with him. So it would be telling the man, I intend to heal you. Now this idea of spitting saliva having high healing properties, we have the same idea. Dogs lick their wounds. Why do dogs lick their wounds? Because of the saliva helps heal the wound. So that's not beyond the realm of probability as to, to, in order to explain this, what to us is an unusual action. In fact, Adam Clark says it's so unusual, this is what he says, quote, this place is exceedingly difficult. There is scarcely an action of our Lord's life, but one can see an evident reason for this, except this. Various interpretations are given of, it, given of it. None of them satisfies my mind. Well, the explanation I just gave you satisfies my mind. Makes a lot of sense. That came out of Baker's commentary, by the way. Now, Adam Clark has another idea. He wants to translate the Greek and make the he refer to the he that spit and touched his tongue refer to the deaf man. It was the deaf man, not Christ, who touched his own ears and then spit. And then, I guess, touched his own tongue. He touched his ears to show Jesus where his problem was. And he spit to make sure there was nothing objectionable in his mouth when Jesus examined it. Well, that's very clever. That's not as good as what I just told you. Some people say that Jesus spit and moistened the man's tongue because it was parched and he wanted to lubricate it to make it free in its motion. I don't believe that. That's all a little bit uh, improbable speculations. It was just simple hey, Saliva stands for healing. I'm going to heal your tongue. And by the way, Jesus also did that with another blind man. He spit. This is in Mark 8. We'll get to in the next chapter. He spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Do you see anything? 
And I suppose the spitting there is for the same reason, because spitting saliva had healing properties, and he's trying to communicate, hey, I'm going to heal you. John 9, 6, after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Again, healing. Some people speculate there that he's trying to go back to Genesis where Adam was made from the mud in the ground. That's some highfalutin speculating. I just think it's the idea of saliva has healing abilities. Moving on to Mark chapter 7, verses 34 and 35. Then looking up to heaven, this signifies to the deaf man that he's getting ready to pray, or he is, well, he is praying. He sighed deeply. That shows he was full of compassion. He sighed deeply. Now, that's something we ought to focus on. I know that I, oftentimes, when I read these miracles, think about the incredible power that Jesus exercised in order to do the miracles, but he was full of compassion. In fact, how many times does it say he was moved with compassion? It's King James having his bowels. He was moved in his bowels. Terrible English. But the idea, he really loved those people he was healing. These were not just ministry statistics to him. He sighed deeply and said to him, Ephratha, Ephratha, which is Aramaic, and Mark translates it for us, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, his speech difficulty was removed, and he began to speak clearly. Now, why does Mark bother to give us this Aramaic word here? I suppose that he pronounced the word with peculiar and authoritative emphasis, as Adam Clark says. In other words, it stood out in Whoever saw this, probably Peter saw it and got the detailed remark, and it, it struck them. Now, I know that in a bilingual environment, such as they were, that sometimes, were, and the linguists have a special word for it, and I can't remember what the word is, but I noticed it when I was in China. Chinese people speaking very good English, but all of a sudden go back and throw in a Chinese word instead of using the English. And or if they were speaking Chinese, actually, they would they would throw an English word in instead of speaking completely Chinese. And then I found myself doing the same thing. I'd be speaking English and then I'd use a Chinese word like there's one Chinese word, guanxi. There's no way to translate it. So you just go back to the to the to the uh, word. Now, if after, I guess, could be translated easily. And so that, that might not explain why the foreign language is thrown in here. I suspect it was because it was very dramatic. Be opened. And his ears were opened. That's kind of a, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing that he would throw that foreign word in there. I don't know what the reason is, but I suspect that's the reason is because it, he said it in such a dramatic way that it stuck in Peter's mind or whoever related this to Mark. Some people say that when he sighed deeply, it wasn't because of compassion for the poor man, but it was because he felt unequal to the task. Nonsense. Jesus wasn't unequal in any miracle. Moving on to Mark chapter 7, verse 36 and 37. Then he, Jesus, ordered them to tell no one. But the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes deaf people hear and people unable to speak, talk. This is the messianic secret, so-called. He's trying to tell everybody to be quiet because he doesn't want to get proclaimed prematurely as political messiah, thus wrecking his plans to train his disciples and thus bringing the Romans in and just bringing the Jews in and just ruining everything. And again, once again, this is the Son of God, but he can't keep the people. To, they don't listen to him. They keep telling everybody. They just couldn't keep their mouth shut. They said, we've never seen anything like this. And boy, I tell you, it makes me wish I was there. I love history. And I said, boy, if I had a time machine, that's the first place I'd go is to watch Jesus do all these miracles and to listen to him teach, to meet him actually in the flesh. But those people were very blessed, and some of them were so stupid. They were looking at the very Son of God, and they rejected him. Hopefully, I wouldn't do that. But I sure would love to have seen all this. This messianic secret is everywhere in the scriptures. Mark 144, Jesus 
says this, See that you, this is a leper in Capernaum that Jesus healed, see that you say nothing to anyone, Mark 5:19. but he would not let him, the Gadarene demoniac, uh, speak. He told them, go back home to your own people. Excuse me, and he wouldn't let him follow, follow him into Galilee. He wanted to keep it quiet. Mark 5:43. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and said that she, this is Jairus's daughter, the synagogue official's daughter, should be given something to eat. No one should know about this healing of the synagogue ruler's daughter. And one more, Matthew 16:20. This is after Peter had confessed that at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus was the Christ, right before his trip down to Jerusalem to get crucified. Jesus says, uh, Matthew says this, and he, Jesus, gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. So he's trying to keep it quiet all, until he got to the end of his ministry when he, became, he proclaimed openly, openly that he was the Christ. But notice now, when there was a conflict with Jesus' need for secrecy and his desire to heal, what went out? His desire to heal. And all of this is more evidence that divine healing gets the gospel spread. You, when people get healed, people talk about it especially when the miracle is verifiable with lots of witnesses, as these were, and especially when the miracle is not merely providential, but where something happens that medical science can't explain. Now, I'm going to give you a story. I'm so used to uh, listening to seminary professors because I'm a nerd, and it seems like all of them are cessationist. If they see something miraculous, they immediately try to explain it away. Well, I was watching Gary Habermas who is considered the world's number one evidence uh, uh, expert on the evidence for the resurrection. He's an evidential apologist, and I don't necessarily think that's the best way to evangelize, but I just say that he's big on evidence. And he was talking about near-death experiences. And again, how many people do you hear poo-poo near-death near experiences? Oh, it couldn't happen. They're not theologically accurate. Some of the details contradict, and they go on and on, moaning and groaning. In fact, there's some guy named Long, I think, at Southeastern Seminary, Conservative Seminary at Wake Forest. I just watched him talk about near-death experiences, and he poo-pooed them, and, you know, oh, it must be the devil, and this kind of thing. Well, then Gary Habermas gets up and gives a talk about near-death experiences where he said, there's enough evidence here you can't explain that away. Evidence, see. But then he mentioned healing. And my ears perked up at this because this is Jerry Falwell's university. I mean, and these guys have not been noted for healing. I mean, this is not Christ for the nations. This is nothing charismatic. This is just your ordinary, plain vanilla, evangelical type Bible school. And he gets up and he says that some doctor had come to the campus a couple of years ago. He'd written a book about a thousand pages long full of testimonies of people who had been healed. And then he said one I especially liked was where a boy with a club foot was being prayed for, and the doctor who was attending the board with the club foot peeked. I don't know whether the doctor was saved or not. I think he was not saved, but he peeked and opened his eyes and watched as they prayed for this boy with the club foot. And the club foot miraculously straightened up, uncurled, and was perfect, made perfectly okay. Well, is that going to get somebody saved when they hear that? The reason I emphasize this is because that's exactly what happened to me. I saw my leg grow out in the thin air, and I was saved, but I was about to lose my faith. I was just in the depths of despair, awash in skepticism and naturalism, and miracles can't happen today. And when I saw that, I hadn't doubted since. That was 50 years ago. So, yeah, these miracles had a big impact on people. And it's not just ancient people. You say, well, ancient people used to miracles, and so it's not going to affect them so much. Nonsense. They were extremely affected by these miracles. They were astounded, the Scripture says, by these miracles. They were amazed when they saw these miracles, and they tried to make Jesus their king. And some of them, of course, believed in him and followed him and 
formed the nucleus of the church in Judea after Jesus died and was risen again. So don't poo-poo miracles. Don't start talking about all the fakes. Sure, if there's a fake, get rid of it. They're fakes. They were fake exorcists back in Jesus' time. They were fake religious people called Pharisees. We're always going to have to deal with fakes and counterfeits. But don't act like that's the end of the story. Healing is a wonderful thing. If you've ever been sick and ever been healed, you know how wonderful it is. Being sick is, is one of the curses of mankind. It's horrible to be sick, especially disabled sick, deaf, dumb, and blind. And I know God doesn't heal everybody. I know that, and I don't know why. But God doesn't save everybody either. But I still keep on telling people about Jesus, and I'll keep praying for people to be healed. I wish he did heal everybody. I don't know why he doesn't. But I do know he heals some, and every it's just like saving people out of a lifeboat. I'm sorry that some people didn't get saved when the lifeboat went down, but I'm glad that some people did get saved. All right, enough ranting there. Let's finish this audio up right here, and we'll continue with Mark chapter 8 in the next audio. Bye.